Good morning. Uh, my name is Nick Lannon. I am the pastor of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, which is either the northernmost city in the south or the southernmost city in the north, depending on your perspective. I've been living amongst the Louisvillians in their natural habitat for a little over four years now, and they are a people strange to me in many ways. They've convinced themselves that college basketball is superior to pro basketball. They call a horse race the most exciting two minutes in sports. And they eat copious amounts of the worst named food in all the world, something called hot brown. <laughs> and yet I've come to love them and even to call myself one of them. So greetings this morning from Grace Anglican Church in Louisville. We're gonna begin with a word of scripture, something that will help um, shape our time together this morning. So this is uh, Psalm 119, verses one through eight. Psalm 119, verses one through eight. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept fully. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous ordinances. I will observe your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. To your Father in heaven, we ask you to be with us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you are here in our midst. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I am going to tell you the story of the third girl that I ever tried to ask out on a date. Uh, the fourth girl that I ever asked out on a date is my wife. Uh, so though this story is a tale of woe, there's a silver lining to this cloud. It's not quite like Milhouse Van Houten's relationship with Lisa Simpson, which he immortally described by saying, we started out like Romeo and Juliet, but ended in tragedy. <laughs> now, this particular tragic event, the story that I'd like to relate to you this morning, took place in college, either just before I met my wife or during that dark time where she was, gasp, dating someone else. I was working at McDonald's at the time and I was infatuated with one of my coworkers, of course, me being who I am, uh, for weeks and weeks, I did absolutely nothing about it. And then one night at home in my apartment, I had finally had enough of myself. I wasn't working, I was at home, and I went into the bathroom, and I literally started talking to myself in the mirror. Just like a character in a movie, I actually did this. I stood there gripping the sink, and I said, you can do this. She likes you. Go over there and ask her out. She was working that night, so I sort of got myself all amped up in the mirror, got on my bike, 
and rode over there rehearsing all the way the simple but cool way that I would ask her out. So parked my bike, got in line at the register at which she was working and waited for my time to come. And then it was there, my moment. Oh, hi, Nick, she said. What do you want? And what did I say? With the opportunity totally teed up for me like that. Well, I remember exactly what I said. Double quarter pounder with cheese, <laughs> no onions, and a large fries. She got me my food and I slunk off to a corner to drown my sorrows in all beef patties and French fried potatoes. So what happened to me? It's pretty simple actually. Somewhere between the bathroom mirror and the McDonald's cash register, my statement to myself went from she likes you to she probably doesn't like you. From you can do this to you definitely can't do this. The confidence that I had at the beginning had faded completely away by the climactic moment. Now, you may never in your life have suffered such an indignity at a McDonald's, but you know what I mean. You have had stuff like this in your own life, haven't you? It's the promotion that you did everything possible to earn, only to be passed over at the last moment for the boss's nephew. It's the way you promise yourself that you're never going to make that mistake again, only to find yourself trapped in the same vortex of failure again and again and again. This is a totally human story, a story that we find ourselves living over and over. It's the story of the transition from you can do this to you definitely can't do this. It's the story of an impossible life. And this is the story that the psalmist is trying to get across at the beginning of Psalm 119. Now, remember the psalms are like songs or poems, so they're not going to necessarily get directly to the point. A little poetic license is required, but what a poem this song is. Listen again to how the psalmist opens, beginning with Psalm 119, verse 1. Happy are they whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are they who observe his decrees and seek him with all their hearts, who never do any wrong, but always walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept fully. The law of the Lord is so great, he says. Those who obey it, who never do anything wrong, are so happy. And he seems to be saying that he's going to be one of these people. You can picture him at the bathroom mirror. You can do this. She likes you. The psalmist starts off so optimistically. Everything looks so good. There's the law, the decrees of God, the expectations he has for his people, and the psalmist is going to obey. But then, pretty quickly, things start to go 
awry. I remember signing up for an astronomy class in college. Sounds like an easy A, right? Stay up late, look at some stars, maybe learn some constellations, bada bing, bada boom, pump up the old GPA. But then, on the very first day of class, when the professor started writing mathematical equations on the board that were several feet long and literally involved no numbers, it's all like letters and symbols and the speed of light and time, I knew immediately that I was in way over my head. What had started with such optimism was now becoming a real problem. You can do this had crashed and burned into you definitely can't do this. What had at first seemed like it might be easy and then started to seem difficult had turned out to be impossible. And this is life. What seems difficult is actually impossible. We're all told as children that we can do anything we set our minds to, as long as we're willing to work hard and not take no for an answer. But we learn pretty quickly as we get older that that's just not true. Not only can't we do anything we set our minds to, we can't do most things we set our minds to. Not anything important anyway. I can't decide to not be jealous of the other friend of mine for whom life seems to come so easy. I can't decide to be satisfied with the things that I have or to make it through one day without getting frustrated with my kids. I can't even decide to be in a good mood. If I could, I would, every single day. It turns out that something that sounds as simple as turning my frown upside down is absolutely impossible. And that's to say nothing of the impossible expectations of God. Impossible things like loving my enemies, turning the other cheek, honestly and actually caring for someone else more than I care for myself. We've been told that the difficult is common and that the impossible is rare. And that's the inherent assumption in the statement, you can do anything you set your mind to. But in fact, the opposite is true. Some things are genuinely difficult, but these are things like learning to fly fish and balancing your checkbook. The impossible is everywhere. Relax. Be more open-minded. Don't let that thing bother you so much. Stop hating. Stop lusting. Stop lying. Love unreservedly. Live intentionally. Not difficult. Impossible. The psalmist starts to discover this after he sets out to meet God's expectations. Listen to how he continues. Things are beginning to get uncertain. We're going to start again in verse 5. Oh, that my ways were made so direct that I might keep your statutes, he says. Then I should not be put to shame 
when I regard all your commandments. I will thank you with an unfeigned heart when I have learned your righteous judgments. You hear the shift, right? It used to be, happy are they who keep your law. Now it's, oh, how I wish my ways were direct. Oh, that my ways were made direct so that I might keep your statutes. Then I should not be put to shame. I will thank you with an unfeigned heart when I have learned your righteous judgments. For now, though, my heart is feigned. It's faking, pretending. If I'm being totally honest, I'm not really all that thankful for your law. When I was psyching myself up in the bathroom mirror, everything seemed great. Happy are they whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. But now, I'm starting to have second thoughts. It's like the turn in the middle of Jurassic Park, right? All the wonder and awe are gone. The sweeping John Williams score has faded away and it has started to rain. The electric fences are down and the tyrannosaur is out. All of a sudden, God's law doesn't seem so wonderful. All of a sudden, we're starting to wonder if we should be happy. After all, our way is not blameless, is it? We haven't walked in the way of the Lord, have we? We can't, even on our best days, claim to have done nothing wrong. We're coming to the realization that this life is impossible. We hear those pounding tyrannosaur footsteps and the water in the cup is vibrating. God's law is coming for us. And so it's with the tyrannosaur at our heels that we come to Psalm 119 and verse 8, which is a long way from verse 1. Remember, again, where we started. Happy are they whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The sun is shining, John Williams is playing, the tyrannosaur is safely in his pen, and Richard Attenborough is talking about how much money we're all going to make. But where do we end up? Here's verse 8. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And this verse should be more properly read like this. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is a cry for mercy. This is begging. This is terror. I'll do anything you want. Please be merciful. The law, the expectation, has now done its work. It has shown us our sin, our failure to live up to God's expectations. It has revealed our true natures, and we are terrified. Life has become impossible. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. 
So this is the progression that Psalm 119 walks us through. First, excitement at setting out to do the things we're called to do, even though they might seem difficult. But then, to a terrified begging to God that he not forsake us. And what I want to suggest to you is this, that as long as we think of our lives as difficult, we will always try to be our own saviors. It's only when we recognize the truth that our lives are actually impossible that we will call out for a savior who is not us. A savior who might actually get the job done. Now perhaps you think this is an overstatement. You'd never try to save yourself. But think about all the times in your life when you've loved the hard things. The satisfaction you got from accomplishing something that you or the people around you didn't think you could. The joy you felt at showing everyone, including yourself, what you were capable of. Because that's the truth. We desire to do the difficult things because it allows us to feel as though we've justified ourselves. To point back to those things and say, did you guys just see the thing that I did? Wasn't it impressive? And what are we really saying when we say something like that? We're saying, shouldn't I get some credit? Haven't I shown that I'm enough? Haven't I justified myself? And just like that, our felt need for a savior has subconsciously vanished. Look what I did. Look what I can do is the battle cry of the self-savior. But this, my friends, is not life. It's death. Life without a savior from the outside is not life at all. It's actually death. Let me tell you what I mean. Remember the end of Saving Private Ryan. When Tom Hanks sacrifices his life to save Matt Damon, he tells him to earn this. Ooh, we might think, watching the movie. That's a difficult burden. But then we flash forward 60 years and we see the elderly Matt Damon weeping before Tom Hanks' grave, begging his wife to tell him he's lived a good life. Tell me I've been a good man, he beseeches her. This is exactly what has happened to the psalmist, confronted by the law of God. What we thought was a difficult burden has revealed itself to be impossible to bear. Something we thought was hard was actually a Tyrannosaurus. There is no life that Matt Damon could have lived that would have been good enough for him to feel sure that Tom Hanks would have been satisfied. So his life has been an impossible struggle to self-justify, to earn this. And in fact, it's not been a life at all. It's a death. By making Matt Damon his own savior, by making him earn this, Tom Hanks has released a tyrannosaur into his life. 
In the same way, in a movie called The Weatherman, Nicolas Cage has spent the whole film trying to impress his successful father and win back his estranged wife. He thinks that his life is difficult. He's convinced that if he can just do the difficult thing, which in his case is sort of shape up and get the national television weatherman job with Bryant Gumbel, if he can just do this difficult thing, then everything will work out. Everything will be okay. But then he gets the job, and nothing is okay. His wife is still with another man. His father remains unimpressed. He is not happy. And his life, he realizes, was never difficult. It was impossible. The Tyrannosaur is out. He tried to be his own savior and everything fell apart. You've got Tyrannosaurs in your life too. You see, the law, whether it's the expectation of God or of society or just your own self-imposed expectations, the law is a tyrannosaur. St. Paul says almost exactly that in Romans 7 verse 9 when he says that I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. In other words... When the law got out, I found I couldn't control it, and it ate me alive. But you know this. You're being eaten alive every day. From the sublime, be wise. Be a good provider for your family. Be an exemplary follower of Jesus to the ridiculous. Be sexy, be rich, have the most popular newly released book at the Mockingbird Conference. These are impossible weights to bear. I remember when my wife and I were outfitting the first home that we shared after our marriage, we struggled and struggled to find a couch that would sort of perfectly fit the odd space that this house had for a couch. And we searched and searched and searched. It took forever. And it felt like our lives would never be complete without it. And then we found the perfect couch and everything was okay for a moment. It was the very next day that it rained so hard that the trunk of our car filled with water, becoming a sort of disgusting mobile swimming pool and nothing was okay. The Tyrannosaur was out, and life was impossible again. When we begin, when we're standing in front of the mirror, whether it's to obey the law of God or to live up to the standards the world has placed upon us or just to finally ask that girl out, We are optimistic about ourselves. You can do this, we think. We're like that rich young man who told Jesus that he'd been following the law since he was a child. 
Happy are they whose way is blameless, he might have said, quoting Psalm 119, like me, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, like that rich man, we exult in our ability to accomplish the difficult. We love it. It lets us think of ourselves as our own saviors, which is our fondest wish. But Jesus knows better. He knows the death to which that leads. So he lets the law out of its cage. He releases the Tyrannosaur. Sell all you have, he tells the young man. Give the money away. Come and follow me. In Mark chapter 12, when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, he's not giving a difficult commandment. He's giving an impossible one. Hear me, love your neighbor. Not just the neighbor you barbecue with, the one on the other side that you can't seem to get along with, the one who lets his dog poop on your driveway. The one down the street who doesn't look like you. The one across town who's nothing like you. The one in your office who actively hates you. The one on your Facebook feed whose political views are exactly the opposite of yours. Love them as you love yourself. Mark says that after Jesus said that, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> of course not. They're all cowering in fear. The Tyrannosaur had been released. What we thought was difficult has been revealed to be totally impossible. Be perfect, Jesus says in Matthew 5, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that's a tyrannosaur. And so we, like the psalmist, transition pretty quickly from happy are they whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, to I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Jesus releases the tyrannosaur of the law to show us that our lives are impossible and to make us cry out for help. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And now... Good news. We are not utterly forsaken. Our cry is answered. And not because we've given it our best shot. Not because we came closer than some of the other people in our lives. Not because we get credit for trying. Not because we've accomplished something difficult. We are not utterly forsaken because Jesus Christ was utterly forsaken. 
My God, my God, he cried from the cross, why have you forsaken me? In that great moment, God turned his back on his son, our Savior, so that he would never have to turn his back on us. The skies darkened, the earth quaked, the veil of the temple was torn into the tyrannosaur of God's law was on full rampage. But the miracle of the gospel, it devoured someone else in our place. Jesus Christ, the righteous, his body broken, his blood shed for you. For me, the impossible accomplished. A sinner like you and like me saved. So the psalmist, it turns out, is singing about Jesus. Happy are they whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are they who observe his decrees and seek him with all their hearts, who never do any wrong, but always walk in his ways. This is Jesus Christ, your perfectly righteous Savior. He is who Paul cries out to in Romans 7 when he realizes he's being eaten by the tyrannosaur of God's law, his gloriously impossible standard for us. Who will deliver me, Paul cries, from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. We who were killed by the law, eaten by the tyrannosaur, by the impossibilities of our lives, are now alive again in Jesus Christ. Jesus has been forsaken for you, and on his account, you never will be. He was blameless He has slain the Tyrannosaur, and he has given that victory and his blamelessness to you. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is Lord of the impossible. The impossible is his workshop. It's where he makes miracles. He doesn't rush to his friend Lazarus' side to heal his sickness. That would have been difficult. He waits until he can do the impossible thing and raises him from the dead. When God's people are enslaved in Egypt, he does not bring them out by some difficult route. He does the impossible and walks them on dry land through the middle of a sea. He doesn't teach 5,000 hungry people a difficult lesson about sharing and compassion. He feeds them until they are impossibly full, stuffed 
with five loaves and two fish. The impossible is all around us. You live in it every single day. God uses it to show you your sin. He uses it to show you your need. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, is Lord of the impossible. He bore the impossibly heavy weight of your sin. He meets the impossible depths of your need. And then he does one more impossible thing. On the morning of the third day, three women went to the tomb to do a difficult thing. There was a giant stone that they were going to have to roll away. They didn't know how they were going to do it, but they were willing to try. Maybe they had to psych themselves up in the mirror that morning. But then, when they turned that final corner, the difficult thing was no longer an issue. Something impossible had happened. The tomb was empty, and a new announcement went out to the world. Even death is no obstacle to this Jesus. Why do you look for him among the dead? He is not here. He is alive. This is the life lived on the other side of the realization that your life is impossible. It is a life given to the one whom even death itself could not hold. On account of him, you need never justify yourself again. There is no more difficult work to do. Jesus Christ, your Savior who is not you, has an answer for your impossible life. It is finished. And it is. His life is yours. Amen. Thank you.